Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. And uh, I'm going to do some singing at the end of the message tonight. And so pray that God uses the word and prepares our hearts to express worship to him uh, as we hear the word and then respond accordingly to it. Romans chapter 7. I think one of the most absurd thoughts that enters the mind of man is, I can live up to the law and its demands. I can be that good. Now, the the Jews viewed anyone who questioned the law to be a blasphemer. Paul does not question the law in Romans chapter 7, but he says there's a greater law. The Pharisees thought Jesus was the lawbreaker. In reality, Jesus is the only one that ever lived up to it. They accused Paul and tried to kill him because he was teaching men everywhere against the people and the law. Two times in chapter 6, Paul says, You are not under law, but under grace. Now, was Paul saying that we should disregard the law? No. Was he saying that the law of Moses is not the law of God? No, he wasn't saying that either. Is he saying you don't have to worry about the law, just live like like you want to? No, he's not saying that. There are three basic views about the law. When you summarize all the thought trains that people have about the law, they come down to about three views. Number one is legalism. Legalism. Being in bondage to the law, people that imagine that their relationship with God is tied up in keeping rules and regulations. And by the way, people who get caught up in legalism have a hard time with love. They have a hard time loving other people that don't live up to their rules. Because they put people on a certain level because they think that because they're living up to certain laws that they are better than other people. The legalist, I think, defines sin this way. Sin is what you do that I don't do that I don't approve of. Because a legalist usually has hidden sin in their life. It it is a self-righteousness based on I keep laws. And by the way, every legalist only keeps the laws they want to keep. They ignore the other ones. And you have to be very careful with a legalist because what they do is they measure spirituality by what they don't do. You know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. Well, neither does a light pole. That doesn't make a light pole spiritual. Second group is the antinomians. They reject the law. In fact, they set themselves up against the law. The antinomians see the law as a hindrance. And they hate the law and they repudiate the law. No rules, no regulations, no boundaries. I, I was in a meeting uh, last week in Fort Myers with about uh, 16 pastors, and uh, we were talking about various things that people do. And one of the subjects that came up, this has nothing to do with the law, it's a rabbit. I'm going to chase it for two minutes. One of the subjects that came up was about 65% of the guys in that room no longer do Sunday night services. And they were telling me, you know, well, we don't do this, and we don't do that, and we don't do this, and we don't do that. And finally, I just said, uh, what do y'all do? <laughs> I know what you don't do, but what do you do? And, uh, and so uh, one of the guys that was pretty vehement about, you know, you just, people don't want to come back. Nothing ever happens on Sunday. You know, I said, well, I said, let me just give you a Warren Wiersbe quote here for you to chew on for a while. Never move a fence until you find out why it was put there. There's a reason why churches hundreds of years ago started having services on Sunday night. You better find out what that reason was. And you better find out if you're still meeting that with everything else that you're doing. Because the chances are, when you take something away, you're not replacing it. And I said, the other thing that you need to remember, guys, if five years from now God convicts your heart that you need to go back to that, you'll never get people to come back. Because once you give people the right to say, hey, I don't have to do anything at church except show up on Sunday morning, that's all they'll ever do again. You'll never get the commitment level back. And what the parents do in coming once a week, their kids won't even come once a week. 
because nothing ever drifts toward godliness. Everything drifts toward being ungodly and compromising. So that's my rabbit. I'm through. There's the New Testament balance view. That's the third one. Uh, People who have a balanced view of the law understand the value of the law, but they also understand its weakness. We understand that the law neither justifies us nor sanctifies us. That's not the purpose of the law. The balanced view is that the law cannot justify us or or sanctify us, but it is an expression of God's values and God's virtues. It is an expression of God's standard and reveals to us what we can't live up to. And yet we love it because of the power of the Spirit tells us to love the things that God loves. Now, Paul deals directly or indirectly with these three views all through the book of Romans, but particularly in Romans chapter 7. Now, there should be an outline in your notes. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is basically this. The law no longer has power over us. The law no longer has power over us. We are not bound to the law. We are bound to Christ. And so in those first six verses, he's trying to tell us that we are bound to Christ, not to the law. Secondly, in verses 7 through 13, Paul defends the law against those who would throw it out and say, well, we don't need it anymore. We've got grace. We've been saved by grace. We don't even even worry about the law anymore. And so if you read verses 12 and 13, he, he says, the law is good. And then in verse 18, he says, and in my flesh dwells no good thing. So Paul is refuting those who say just because we operate out of love does not mean that we ignore what the law says to us. The law's good, we're not. And then in verses 14 through chapter 8 and verse 4, the chapter break is very unfortunate to me and to many people that uh, the chapter break ends at chapter 7. It really should go through verse 4 of chapter 8. Uh, This deals with the inner struggle between the mind and the flesh. And it tells us, I need the Holy Spirit to empower me to live the life that God's called me to live. I can't keep the law. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do, and I do it. So let's look at the hardness of the law in verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to it, by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter." Now, in chapter 6, Paul tells us we are dead to sin. In chapter 7, he tells us we are delivered from the law. Look at verses 1 through 3. This is an analogy that he's giving in verses 1 through 3. He's not giving us a story about marriage. He's using it as an analogy to make an application in verses 4 through 6. He's trying to use marriage to illustrate the point about the law. Now, If you trace what Paul says in chapters 1 through 6, you realize that the first husband represents old Adam, the old Adam. And all of our efforts to do good have failed. Adam failed. He could not do good. He is, everything came into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. 
And we became sinners because of their sin. So Paul is tracing that, and he says, any goodness that you and I have is just superficial. And he comes now to chapter 7, and he says, now we're in Christ, and he died, and we've been set free from fear and failure because we know in our hearts we cannot live up to the law. We see it, and we know we've broken it. Now, there's several things about the law. First of all, the law requires perfection. The law requires perfection. Have you ever met anybody that was perfect? I haven't. You get around anybody long enough, and you'll find out they're not perfect. But the law requires perfection, so no one can live up to the law. It is a standard that we cannot live up to. So who had to live up to the law? Christ did. And Christ paid the price for our sin, and so the law's jurisdiction over us is broken. Now we are married to Christ out of love, not to the law out of frustration and bondage. So the law requires perfection. The second thing the law has is jurisdiction. It's binding. By the way, it's the same word used in Mark 10, 42 that is translated, Lord it over. The penalty for sin, it's, it's binding and it's lorded over. And the penalty for sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. The penalty for sin is not paid for by you and I doing good or checking boxes. Well, you know, I kept eight of the Ten Commandments today. I had a really good day. That's not how you pay for sin. That's, how not, that's not how you overcome. And so in chapter 6, he contrasted two slaves and now in chapter 7, he contrasts two marriages. Romans 7 is an explanation of chapter 6, verse 14. So if you want to write by Romans 7, chapter 6, verse 14, sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Go back to verse 4 of chapter 7. You are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ. On the cross, Christ was made sin on our behalf. He took our sin on himself. He fulfilled the righteous demands of a holy God. In one person, at one time, God the Son, also God, Son of Man, all flesh, all divine, took the penalty and the price for sin. And therefore, we were made also to die to the law through the body of Christ. Now, anybody here failed and blown it this week? Or has everybody had a great week and not done anything wrong? Well, I've blown it this week. And what Romans 7 tells me is I, I, I'm not condemned by the law because now as a believer I have an advocate. And my advocate is Jesus Christ who paid the price and fulfilled all the law's demands that I could not fulfill. And so God t tells us here that we're not free to sin. So some people say, well, I'm not bound to the law anymore. I can just live however I want to live. No, I am free now to bind myself to Christ out of love not out of obligation and not out of legalism and not out of trying to keep rules. I'm no longer bound to that kind of life that doesn't produce life. It produces frustration. I'm now bound out of love to Christ. I used to be married to trying to keep up the law, and I would fail at every turn. Now I'm married to Christ, and when I fail, it is His sufficiency and His grace that sees me through those failures, not the fact that I just try a little harder next week. And a lot of Christians are frustrated because they're trying a little harder this week than they did last week, and you cannot live up to the law. You're not empowered to do it on your own. Only Christ can live up to the law. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I was bound to the law, now I'm freely binding myself to Christ. By the way, the Galatians says that the Holy Spirit has written on our hearts a new covenant a new covenant. I, I don't know about you. I'm grateful for the law, and we're going to talk about what it does, but I'm grateful that I'm not saved by trying to keep the law. 
because nobody has ever been saved by keeping the law. Secondly, the weakness of the law. Now, a casual reading of verse 5, you would, you would might believe that the law is responsible for sin and for death. Paul says in verse 7, may it never be. God forbid. He says in verse 13, did that which is good become the cause of death for me? May it never be. You see, you can't blame the law because you're a sinner. You're a sinner because you're a sinner. And the law simply points it out. The law reveals it. You don't, you don't blame it on the law. Verses 1 through 13 says the law can't give life to a lost man. And these people that you witness to, and they say, well, you know, I'm just hoping that when I get to heaven that my good outweighs my bad, and when God balances it out, I, you know, I kept most of the law, and I, but, but I didn't keep it up. But, you know, on the scales of judgment, I'll get there because I kept most of the law. But Paul, Paul said, you know, I broke coveting, and I broke them all. How good can you be? How many can you keep? The law condemns. The law reveals. The law judges. The law shows us who we really are. And, and, and Paul says the law has a threefold function. Number one, by the law, sin is defined. Look at verse 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. How do we know about sin? The law reveals sin. The law reveals that we've come short of the glory of God, that we've not lived up to God's standards. Sin is not what we do. Sinners is what we are. And we can talk about sins plural, but the reality is our problem is sin nature. And the law reveals that we have a nature bent towards sinning that almost wants to sin. Well, it does want to sin. It doesn't almost want to sin. So the law is defined. I would not have known it except through the law. Secondly, by the law, sin is provoked, verses 8 through 12. I can't blame the law for my sin because it's my fallen, depraved nature that wants to rebel against God's law. You see, it not only exposes it, it provokes it. Look at verses 7 and 8. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now that word, taking opportunity, is a word for a military launching of an offensive campaign. Sin looks for an opportunity to go on the offensive, to mount a campaign against our lives, to defeat us in our lives. It looks for an opportunity and a foothold, and you see it every day. Okay, let's just be honest. The sign says 35 miles an hour, and you think, the sign says, reduce speed ahead. I will if my radar detector goes off. But nobody's going to tell me to reduce speed ahead if I don't want to. What is that? The law revealed to you that you want to do. You don't want to do what the sign says. You want to break it. Watch out. I don't want to watch out. Hard hat required. Nobody can make me wear a hard hat. Well, hard head, you ought to. <laughs> Private, do not enter. Says who? Why can't I go there? Why do just certain people get to go there? You see, when signs are posted for us, you know what they do? They provoke in us, why can't I do that? Why can't I be there? Why can't I have that? Why can't I do what I want to do? What do those things do? It's not the law that is provoking us. It is the sin that is being provoked in us. You tell me I can't do something, I want to do it. Now, how many of you have ever had that experience with your children? Don't do that. 
The minute he leaves the room, I'm doing it. And then something happens. You know, how many times have you as a parent, excuse me for a moment, how many times have you as a parent said, now if you do this, there are going to be consequences of this. And they walk right out and do it anyway, and there are consequences, and they're surprised. (laughs) You mean there are consequences? Yeah, dummy. You must have come from your mother's side of the family. <laughs> you know, what, what, what was wrong with you? How, how could you not know there'd be consequences? What happened? Their sin, not my little baby, my baby doesn't have a sin. Your baby's got a nasty sin nature. Because your baby wants its way. And you know when it wants its way the most? Your baby wants its way when you tell it, no, you can't have that. I want it. It's mine. Why? Because the law said you can't have it. But sin inside said, I deserve it. I ought to get it. I have a right to it. I know another little boy down the street and he got it. So if he got it, I'm going to get it. Why? Because it provokes us. It it builds a barrier. You know, don't do this. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Sin provokes us. It takes an opportunity and produces in me a coveting of every kind. The perfection of the law reveals my imperfections. Number three, by the law, sin is exposed, verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Verse 9, go back to verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now folks, when sin becomes alive, you become accountable. That's why we talk about reaching the age of accountability. You know, because until a child understands that that is sin against a holy God. You see, there's more to a child understanding sin than I did something my mom and dad told me not to do. That's a beginning. But until a child understands my sin is against a holy God, then they are alive to it and they're accountable for it. When it's against God... And they understand it's against God. And I'll use an illustration I've used before. I remember when, when I sat on the couch in our home in Lake Park and, and uh, I was witnessing to Erin one Sunday night after church. And it was about 9 o'clock at night. And she was saying, I feel like I need to get saved. And I, I believe, I, Daddy, I need to get saved. I need to ask Jesus in my heart. And so I knew the one thing I could do that would test her. I said, well, Aaron, we've had a good talk. And I, I think you understand a lot of things. Why don't you just go to bed and we'll talk about it tomorrow? And she said to me, Daddy, if I die tonight, I'll go to hell. I want to talk about it now. Sin was alive in her and she knew she was accountable for it. And at that point, I knew that I could lead her to understand how to be saved. Why? Because it became alive in her. All of a sudden it wasn't, oh, I hear about sin. I know about sin. I can quote you the verses on sin. But it was the accountability of I know if I die right now. I'll go to hell. That's when she became accountable for it. So that's when she got saved that night because she became accountable and she wanted to deal with it right then. You know, when I realized I was a sinner, I realized I couldn't meet God's standard. Now, don't don't let me offend anybody by this, but there are a lot of good old boys think they're going to go to heaven because they're good old boys. And they're not. You know, I've heard people say, he's a good old boy. Yeah, but did he know Jesus? There are a lot of good old boys. You know, he's a good old boy. There was one time there was a woman on the side of the road had a flat, and he pulled over and changed her tire. Well, she was good looking. Of course he did. He didn't have a biblical motive for doing that. He wasn't motivated for the right reason. He's just a good old boy. You know, he's nice to his mama. Well, good. He ought to be. But that doesn't save him. That does not save him. That doesn't bring him into a right relationship with God. You see, when I become accountable, I realize I am without excuse. 
that I will be judged for my sin if I do not let Christ judge it at the cross. And so, I can't blame God for my sin. What the law does is it exposes to me that in my sinful nature, I want to rebel against God. I don't want any authority in my life other than myself. And so when God says, you can or you can't, I want to go against him. And I want to rebel against it. And I want to defend, I want to defend myself in the process of it. You know, you ever heard somebody in prison say, I shouldn't be here. Yeah, you should. That's why you're there. Well, you know, I, I didn't do nothing. Right. Sure. Let me tell you something, folks. The law does not put people in prison. Sin is why they're in prison, and the law merely carries out the judgment. They are not there because of the laws of the state or the land or the country or anything. They're there because they sinned against what was printed and written and clearly defined. And they said, no, I'll have my way. And so the law just merely responded to the sin. That's all it is. You know, so anybody that's there, I mean, they're there, you know, well, it's the way, it's the way that's happened. And that, you know, I was wrongfully accused. Yeah, everybody's wrongfully accused. I was wrongfully accused when my dad caught me doing some things I didn't need to be doing. I mean, it, it, my, when I was a teenager, my dad, my dad, my dad and my mom were omnipresent. I mean, you know, they just, my dad knew, and my mother knew. I mean, she just knew. You know, you just, and you just hated it because you couldn't get away with anything. And I mean, you know, that's, uh, they don't have a right to do that. Yeah, they did. Because they were the authority, they were the law over me. And when they put the law down, it provoked me to want to try to break their laws. Why? Because I thought I knew better. I thought I was smarter than they were. One of the things I would encourage you to do as parents is that you pray that your kids always get caught quickly. I mean, first time. Just pray they get caught. You say, well, they might be hurt. Better to be hurt than to not get caught and think they can get away with things. So we always pray for our girls. Lord, if they do something, I want to I find out the first minute. I want to I smell it in the wind. I want to know immediately. You know, and that's not easy sometimes. But it's the way to pray if you want to protect them because left to ourselves, we want to sin. We love it. And left to ourselves, we rarely choose to say, how much like Jesus can I be? And we most often say, how much can I get away with and God not discipline me? Same thing we do when we're growing up. How much can I get away with and God not discipline me? And we do the same thing with God. So the law's purpose is to reveal my, my need for grace. No one had to teach me to sin. I did that quite well. You know, my mom and dad didn't take me to preschool and say, Now, son, over here, we're going to have a little class over here on how you can sin and get away with it. No, just all those other sinners in there with me helped me learn. And I help them learn. Why? Because we're all just a bunch of sinners. We're just trying to figure out what we can get away with. The law just reveals that I'm a sinner. And the law defines my problem and drives me to God. Because when you understand that you can't meet its conditions, you just throw your hands up and say, I surrender, I quit, I I need help. And so we come to the righteousness of the law in chapter 4. 7 verse 14 through chapter 8 and verse 4. And and there's two things to note here. There are two changes in the text. First is a change in verb tenses. There's a change in verb tenses. If you look at verse 14, the tenses change because in verses 7 through 13, most of the verbs were past tense. I was alive. I died. Sin killed me. They're past tense. 
But in verses 14 and following, the verbs become present tense. And so something's changing in verse 14 that has not happened up to this point in Paul's discussion of the law and sin. The verb tense has changed. Secondly, there's a change in the situation. Not only a change in the verb tenses, but a change in the situation. And Paul describes this fierce ongoing struggle. Now, most Reformed scholars believe that what Paul is doing here is he's talking about the difference between his old life before Christ and his new life in verse 14 and following. And be honest, whether, whether it's that or whether it's he's talking about as a Christian, whatever it is, it takes a mature person to be honest enough to say, I'm doing things I shouldn't do and I'm not doing things I should do. You know, we are in a society where you take no blame. By the way, we have millions and millions and millions of people in America that have bought into the philosophy of it depends on what is, is. It depends on how you want to interpret that. Well, that may be your perspective. Why? Because we have no moral absolutes in our society. We have no right and wrong. Everything's become gray. There is no black and white. There is no, that's wrong, that's right. And society wants to kind of muddy it all up so that anybody can live any way they want to without any consequences. But society can do that, but there's still consequences to the way we live. And so let's, let's pick up in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And notice Paul did not say, I'll try harder to keep the law next time. Who's going to set me free from all of this? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And so I want you to mark down some words that kind of define this passage. First of all, in verses 14 through 18, failure. Failure. I have the will but not the power. I have the will, but I don't have the power. By the way, good little study for you to do. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned one time in Romans 7. I, in verses 14 through 25, is used 25 times. What Paul is doing is he's saying, I've got an eye problem. I've got a sin problem, and it's an I problem. And I, I have failed. I fail. I fail. I don't do what I should do. I'm doing things I don't want to do. I'm failing. I'm failing. I'm failing. I'm failing. And he's and he just, it leads to verses 18 through 20, which is frustration. And there's just frustration. He's got, trying harder is not the key to deliverance. Now, folks, listen, when, when we have victory... We, we work from victory, not for victory. But thanks be to God, 
Now that I have the Holy Spirit, I can try harder. No. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the victory has already been won. That, that, that's already been, it's a finished subject. The victory has been won. And it wasn't your victory, it was Christ's victory. And Christ in you is the hope of glory. And the Holy Spirit in you empowers you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so the Christ in you keeps you from walking in frustration. Why? Because I'm not trying to win a victory in my life. The victory's already been won. I need to appropriate the victory that's already been won. If Jesus can overcome death and hell and the grave, he can help me and empower me to overcome what I'm in bondage to. So there's frustration. And then there's futility, verses 21 through 23. And he just says, you know, what's the use? I, I just can't win. And a lot of people get here and they quit church. And they quit doing the things they know they're supposed to be doing because they, I, I just can't win. I, I, I just can't win. Why? Because we're still in that mode of trying to help God out. I'm going to do God a favor and I'm going to be good this week. And we have yet to say, and the greatest moment of your life will be when you kneel at an altar or in, by your bed or at your office somewhere and you finally say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? I am a wretched man. You see, most people never get broken enough so that they can get to Romans 8. They'd like to be in Romans 8, but you can't get to Romans 8 without going through Romans 7. There's a process here. There's a reason why these chapters follow each other. Dead to sin, delivered from the law, victorious in Christ. There's now for no condemnation for us. And you see, there are people that love to quote Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, but they've never said, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm a wretched man. I'm a sinner. I've been broken by my sin. I've been broken by the fact that I cannot do anything in my flesh to please God. You see, you've got to get wretched before you can get righteous. That's just the basic. And I'm not working to try to be victorious. I, I, listen, I tried that. I, I, I first heard, you know, the first, I grew up in a church. I'm not sure our pastor even knew the Holy Spirit was in the Bible. I never heard a sermon about the Spirit-filled life. I never, nobody ever talked to me about the Spirit-filled life. I went through college and nobody talked to me about the Spirit-filled life. And I, I went to seminary and I went to a conference and I heard Jack Taylor and Ron Dunn and Manley Beasley and Bertha Smith. And I, my cage got rattled in one week. I mean, I, was, I, I felt like I'd been punched in the face for about six rounds with Muhammad Ali. I mean, I just, I felt like I'd been beaten to a pulp because I'd been spending all my life after I'd been saved and even majoring in Bible in college, I'd been spending all my life trying to do better for God. And at that conference in Redbridge Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri, I learned a principle that changed my life. I'm not working for victory. I'm working from victory. And to be filled with the Spirit is not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it's not goosebumps. To be filled with the Spirit is merely obeying a command. Lord, I choose to be filled with the Spirit because you've told me to be filled with the Spirit. It's not optional, it's a command. So I'm going to ask you to fill me with the Spirit and I'm going to live according to what you've told me to do. So the Spirit-filled life is not some mysterious event or some cloud hovers around your head and all of a sudden you get the heebie-jeebies and you get goosebumps and the hair stands up on the back of your head and say, whoo, must, I must have gotten the Spirit. I'll tell you something, folks. I've walked in the Spirit on days I felt lousy. Because it doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. It has to do with who you know. And what He's doing inside of you. And, and so I, 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 I just, I get burdened for people that are trying to help God out. Because I just see the misery and the frustration in their lives. And, you know, they just say, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm trying so hard. Quit trying. You'll never reach it. You can't get there by trying. This is not a marathon race that you're training for. And one day you work up enough energy to cross the line. 
This victory was won for you. You died with Christ 2,000 years ago. You were at the cross with him 2,000 years ago. You were resurrected in Christ, which was 2,000 years ago. You were there at the resurrection. Live like Christ has already done it for you. That's what he's saying. Don't live in futility. Don't live in frustration. Don't live always feeling like a failure. You don't have to live that way, but you've got to get to the point where you say you're a wretched man. And boy, that doesn't do anything for self-esteem. It doesn't do anything for an image-conscious society. But it does a whole lot for your character. Lord, I'm a sinner. I am wretched. And when's the last time any of us ever really sat down and just went through with God how undeserving we are of our salvation? You know, the problem is we can get in church, and after we've been in church for a while, we think God's really lucky to have us. You know, and truth of the matter is, we're just kind of waiting if there's a vacancy in the Trinity, He might ask us to come up and help Him. We're kind of like James and John. Lord, in your kingdom, can one of us be at your left hand and one of us at your right? Because I don't see anybody else that deserves to be there. And I feel like I'm a good candidate. You see, we can get up on ourselves, and we're not supposed to be up on ourselves. We're supposed to be up on who Christ is in us. In my flesh, my flesh, Michael Catt, born December 25th, 1952. In my flesh dwells nothing good. Nothing. I've had the unfortunate times in my life when somebody's walked up to me and say boy I, I wish I wish I could be like you I said I'm just a sinner saved by grace folks that's all I am anything good in me is because of Jesus it's certainly not because of me it's not what I have it's not my gifts my talents my abilities where I've been what I've done I mean you know I, I don't care where I don't care where it is or what I do I know that everything in my life is by the grace of God You know, I don't deserve the wife I have. I don't deserve the kids I have. I don't deserve the church I serve. I don't deserve the ministry I have. I don't deserve the opportunities I've been given. I don't deserve any of that. That's all been by grace. All been by grace. You see, because I know I'm wretched inside. And I know that left to myself on my own, I am capable of any and every sin mentioned in Scripture. Every one. And folks, we have to be careful when we get saved and we get comfortable, we start saying, I would never do that. You better watch it. The devil will ask permission to sift you like wheat. And he'll suck you through a keyhole and he'll find out if you'll never do that. And there are a lot of people that have said, I'll never do something that have ended up doing it. Why? Because we forget to daily go before God and realize that I am wretched apart from Christ. There's nothing good in me apart from him. So he acknowledges his, he's of the flesh in verse 14. We know, verse 18, I know, I know I'm of the flesh. And he says, the law is spiritual. It deals with my spirit. In verse 14, the law deals with the inner man. Remember in Exodus, Exodus dealt with all the outward things, but Deuteronomy deals with the heart. God was progressing his people living in the Old Testament from just here's the outward law, but in Deuteronomy, you, you put this stuff in your heart. You, you, you bind it on your hands, but you put it in there so that when your children talk to you, you can, it comes out of your life. It's an overflow of your life. He, he says, I'm of the flesh, but I am of flesh. When I try to live on my own, when I try to help God out, I'm convicted. And three times, Paul says, sin dwells in me. Romans 6, the problem is, how do you stop doing evil things? Romans 7, the issue is, how can I ever do anything good? Now, the legalist would say, you do good by keeping the law. The problem is, the legalist can't keep all the law. The antinomian would say you'll be okay if you just ignore the law. Just live however you want to live. The balanced believer understands there's no pat answers. There's no formula. That's why you walk by faith. That's why it's by grace. 
there's a long quote by Warren Wiersbe that, that I think we ought to read right now. It says, by the mind, Paul meant the inward man as opposed to the flesh. He amplified this thought in Romans 8, 5 through 8. The old nature cannot do anything good. Everything the Bible says about the old nature is negative. No good thing. The flesh profits nothing. No confidence in the flesh. If we depend on the energy of the flesh, we cannot serve God, please God, or do any good thing. But if we yield to the Holy Spirit, then we have the power needed to obey His will. The flesh will never serve the law of God because the flesh is at war with God. But the Spirit can only obey the law of God. Therefore, the secret of doing good is to yield to the Spirit. Secondly, not only does he acknowledge the flesh, he describes his fleshly condition, and he talks about this battle. Now, we know what God says. God says, don't do this, and, but we do it. You remember what Jesus did when he said, uh, he, he said you know, you, you're not supposed to commit adultery, and, it, and all the Pharisees raised their hands and said, we've never done that. We've never done that. We're not guilty of that one, buddy. You can't get us on that one, great teacher. He said, but if you've coveted and lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. By the way, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. There's not a man in this room that at some point in your life hasn't in your head thought about something with another woman. So don't be so self-righteous. Because we're all sinners saved by grace. And the truth of the matter is there are a lot of Christians that say, if I could get away with something and not get caught, I'd do it. Why? Because sin dominates and sin rules and the law provokes us to want to see what we can get away with. He describes the result of this fleshly condition. He, he says, you know, the law is good. My, I'm bad. I fail because sin dwells in me. Briscoe says, the law pointed out sin in the unbeliever to bring them to repentance. And it goes on pointing out that sin dwells in the believer in order that they may look for an ongoing deliverance. Paul says, it's waging war. It's making me a prisoner. Who will set me free? By the way, that phrase, who will set me free, is an interesting phrase. It is a, it is a military phrase for a Roman soldier that has been wounded in battle and is waiting for the medics to come pull him off of the battlefield. Who's going to deliver me from this battle? And in chapter 7, verse 24, through chapter 8, and verse 4, there's a turning point. Thanks be to God. There is now no condemnation. The Spirit has set us free. Folks, it is easier to get out of Egypt than it is to get into the promised land. Most Christians die wandering in the wilderness. Walking between deliverance out of Egypt, getting saved, and the victorious Christian life, the promised land life, most Christians die in the wilderness, wandering around, eating dust, living defeated lives, because they will never believe the promises of God. What did God say to the children of Israel? Go take the land. It's yours. The enemies are nothing. They're grasshoppers to us. Oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't. We don't have the power. We don't have the power. Who had the power for them? God had the power for them. Did anybody else have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to lead them? No. Anybody else have Jehovah God on their side? No. Had God told them to go? Yes. Did they go? No. And what happened? They all died in the wilderness. Every one of them died. Why? Because they wouldn't believe what God said in his word. And if you read the story in Exodus and you read the wilderness experience, look at how many times it says that they provoked God to anger. Why? Because they wouldn't do what God said. They wouldn't take God at his word. And I believe that there are times when we as Christians provoke God to anger or at least to frustration because God has laid out for us how to walk in a life of victory and we keep saying, no, it can't be that easy. It can't just be by me throwing myself at the mercy of God. I've got to do something to help God out. You can't help God do one thing. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't want your help. It's what Marcia said, this, what Marcia said and what, what uh, Dina said. It, it is just being available to God. God, I can't. I surrender. You can. 
I love the story Ron Dunn used to tell about uh, J. Harold Smith. And J. Harold Smith had a sermon called God's Three Deadlines. J. Harold Smith could have gotten the devil to be saved. He, he, I mean, he was tough. And when he was pastoring in Fort Smith, Arkansas, uh, he was always stirring something up. They had a huge ministry in Fort Smith, Arkansas, before he went into evangelism. And, and J. Harold ran a full-page ad in the Fort Smith paper one time that said, I'm going to reveal the name of the man who has caused me the most problems in this church Sunday night. Full-page ad. Got on the radio. I'm going to reveal the name of the man who causes me the most problems in this church. This was back in the 1950s. Men in that church showed up with their lawyers. <laughs> they showed up with their lawyers. They showed up with notepads. They were going to write it down, and they were going to sue J. Harold for everything he was worth. And he got up and said, I am here tonight, and I'm going to tell you the man that causes me more trouble in this church than anybody else. This man drives me crazy. This man causes me more problems than anybody has ever caused me, and I'm going to name him tonight. He's J. Harold Smith. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And they got mad because he named himself. Ron said they were furious. He said people were griping. All the deacons were not smoking and griping. And <laughs> said they were just furious. Why? Because he said, I'm my biggest problem. Now, folks, listen. It is a milestone in your life when you realize everybody else is not your biggest problem. That you are your biggest problem. The biggest problem I have is Michael Catt. I'm my own worst enemy more times than I need to be. The biggest problem you have is a person you see in the mirror every morning. Oh, wretched man, but thanks be to God that God didn't leave us in a wretched condition and say, y'all crawl around and act like worms on a hot pavement down there. I just want to see you writhe in pain. I just want to see you hurt. No, 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 no. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory. Amen. Thanks be to God. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so victory comes by knowing Christ, by reckoning what he says is true, and by walking in the Spirit. Knowing, reckoning, and walking. There's a cry of desperation, who will set me free? And there's a shout of victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. We're going to sing. I want you to think about this, folks. Anytime you say, I can't handle this, you're just agreeing with God. And anytime you